Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Context and Clarity has been called a community-based pro-practice masterclass for architects. It's awfully high praise, but since we began this journey back in April of 2020, we've certainly grown into a community of small firm architects, all focused on what matters most to their success. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm that's dreaming of going out on your own, or you've owned your own firm for 26 years. There's something here for everyone. And that's where you come in. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Context and Clarity Podcast. Every week, we have a conversation with an expert or a thought leader on things that matter most to the success of architects just like you. Then we go backstage with someone from our community and we talk about what we learned, what our biggest takeaways were, and how we're going to apply what we heard to our own businesses. In this episode, we talked with Bob Fisher. Bob is a principal at Design Intelligence. And if you're not familiar with Design Intelligence or DI, you can find their website at di.net. But Design Intelligence is what it sounds like. They study the AEC industry and they give organizations who are designing and forming the built environment the tools that they need to build better businesses. I want to read this quote from Bob's LinkedIn profile because I think it sums up his work pretty well. Bob says, every day I have the good fortune to see both a macro and micro view of the architecture, engineering, construction, and design industry. I spend half my time looking broadly to understand the larger trends and forces that are shaping both business and leadership in AEC, and then sharing information and insights through our publications. So the DI, Design Intelligence Publications. He goes on to say, I spend the other half deeply embedded in individual firms, getting to know their unique strengths and their challenges and helping them develop strategies to thrive in business 
and to do great work. I love that. I think it sums up the work of design intelligence really well. Our conversation with Bob started out focused on what trends are and how to identify trends and how to react to trends. And then we went on a journey around the profession and talked about what to expect in the future. So give it a listen and see what you think. Catherine McPhail joined me once again for the conversation with Bob Fisher, as well as backstage afterward. Catherine is my co-host, and she's an architect and podcaster now in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. In addition to context and clarity, Catherine hosts Talking Home Renovations with the House Maven, and she's the CEO of Demios Architects. As always, I'm looking forward to talking about our takeaways from the conversation with Bob. So let's go backstage and listen in as Catherine and I talk about our conversation with Bob Fisher of Design Intelligence. At the heart of a lot of his advice is really observing what's going on in your marketplace, what's going on in your clients' lives with your clients to understand what's important, I guess. Uh, I think that was probably one of my my biggest takeaways, um, that it, it starts with observation. Yeah, I don't know. I had I have a lot of thoughts after this um after this episode of Context and Clarity. One of one of the things that I want to talk about because was a downturn that John Jones is has been talking about. So as a trend, people want to talk about whether or not there's going to be another recession. Is there going to be another downturn and right, what should right. we do? So it was this whole idea of getting prepared um, to do it because of course, as you both pointed out, it's the best time to make changes is when you're the busiest. Right. But nobody ever really says what those would be. So I'm wondering like, how do we, how do I take that information and apply it to my practice? Um, and now's the time to be sure that you're prepared. I wrote down, but Ben, I'm, okay, prepared. What does that mean? Does that mean, I guess I have to decide what that means and then go ahead and do that thing. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That's, that's the, um, that's the bigger picture, right? What, what does that actually mean? I mean, I think rule of thumb, you know, cut your expenses. I personally, I would think ramp up your marketing and business development now to, uh, to put things in the pipeline. So I, I think in my mind, it's, how do I reduce my expenditures and and raise my income in preparation and and train myself? I think that's important. I don't know if we talk about that that much, but I think train myself to run leaner and work harder on on the pipeline on the business development side of it. the The economy is cyclical. Right. So in our organization, we have um, we have relationships with economists at the American Institute of Economic Research. Um, Dave Gilmore, who is our president and CEO, did postdoctoral work at the London School of Economics. So we do have people in our organization who are much more steeped in this stuff than I am. But um, one of the one of the challenges with with the economy is um, predictions are almost always wrong. Right. And predictions that are very specific, um, you know, a lot of times those are uh, those are closely associated with hucksters. So what you got to do is you got to take a look when you're looking at the economy. We're in some unusual territory. 
I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal the other day uh, that talked about the last six recessions. And in the last six recessions, there's a very predictable pattern where you have um, the GDP going down over a period of time and unemployment going up over a period of time. They're almost in an X-like formation. Um, what we have is we have a contraction in GDP right now, but plenty of jobs. It's a situation that, you know, it's kind of leaving a lot of economists amused because there are, uh, there are companies out there that still have job openings that are still having a hard time finding talent um, and that still are doing a lot of business. But we've got these other factors that are usually associated with a recession like contraction in GDP. And then also, you know, we've got issues with inflation and things. So that's unique. Um, at least relative to the last 75 years or so. Um, how is that going to play out? I challenge anybody to, to give a very definitive answer. But how is it that, that small, mid-sized, and even large firms need to respond? Well, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things that's very important is uh, to become a more resilient organization, right? To actually have plans for a downturn and say, in a downturn, what is it that we would do? And the time to, uh, to, to deal with a downturn is as far ahead of when it's happening as possible, right? So the challenge that a lot of firms face is the best time to make changes and to create plans is when you are actually the busiest doing other things. So in, in general, and we can continue to unpack that if, if you want to, um, now, what are some of the other factors? Let me go back and, and add a couple of other comments about the economy. Um, the money that was earmarked by the government for COVID relief didn't immediately get released into the marketplace. And a lot of that money is actually just coming out now. Um, here in Atlanta, where I'm based, we actually have um, funds from the bipartisan infrastructure bill that are funding um, a whole lot of headaches and inconvenience for drivers uh, on the Beltline, uh, the Beltline around our city, which is 285. But you know, well, uh, it's it's made all the more special by uh, by infrastructure work. But the point is, is that you've got a lot of money that's being injected into the system uh, that is that is having a buoying effect, you know, in in some sectors. So it's very difficult to say with certainty you know, what's going to happen in the next 12 months or so. Um, I, I don't think that we're going to see a large downturn before the end of the year. I think we, we will see persistent inflation, uh, certainly higher than 5% by the, uh, you know, toward the end of the year. Um, but in terms of a, a recession as the way that we're used to seeing it, um, Insofar as we're, you know, it makes sense to, to make a prediction. I think we're probably looking out into 2023 um, before that kind of thing would happen. Now, how is that relevant? Um, now is the time to make sure that you're prepared, right? So as a, as a, as a practitioner, as a small firm owner, understanding, you know, put your, put your plan together and put your plan in action now. Now is the now is the time. Actually, last year was the time, but failing that today will do. 
the, the time to focus on marketing and business development is not when you need work, right? Because they're good. Cause there's a cycle, right? There's a time between your actions and when you see, uh, you know, some benefit from those. Someone had asked it, like, what do you suggest then four hours a week that when we're really, really busy, we should dedicate four hours a week to, to, um, I guess, business development. Is that what you call it? Well, I, I think it was, you know, Bob went off on, on this, um, uh, on this line of, of talking about researching and understanding and, and of course, business development being wrapped in there too. And I, and you know, he's, he, he, Bob is careful to identify the reality that as small firm owners or sole practitioners or, you know, whatever your context is that you're wearing a lot of hats and you're very, very busy. So you have limited bandwidth. And I, I think it was John Jones's question, you know, what's, what is it? Is it four hours a week or, or, you know, what's, what's reasonable. And as we've been talking, I've been thinking about your situation because you've just, you've, or, or I guess you're still in the process of moving from one area to another area, which is going to change your practice, if nothing else, in location. So what, with that, what have you taken away from this conversation with Bob and, and related to this question that we're talking about at the at this very moment, how much time do you think you're going to need to dedicate to, I don't know, I guess meeting people, learning, learning the marketplace, making connections and, and building a network and things like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how many hours. I don't know if I should do a little bit every day. I never seem to have the time to do what I want to do as it is. So I'm not sure where I'm going to find that time. And I obviously need to cut it out somewhere. And so I don't know. I mean, I guess that's one reason I'm interested in the answer to that question. So I take two mornings a week to dedicate to that. I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, one of the good things is that the reason I guess I'm getting prepared for a downturn in the economy is one of the reasons we moved is so that we could cut down on our expenses. So, so that's something, although I don't feel like I'm cutting down on my expenses right now where I'm buying all sorts of things. So it doesn't feel like it, but I guess eventually, you know, like my, my son pointed out, well, you know, what happens where we're at least we own our house and we're not going to get kicked out of the house. Right. So that's okay. That's something in, in a downturn. Yeah. yeah I, I think, so I was having a conversation with somebody earlier this week and, and the, the, um, the context of the question was different, but I think the, my answer would be the same. Their question was uh, how much, basically how much time, well, I guess it's very similar. How much time do you put into content creation, which is part of their marketing, uh, their marketing efforts, you, you know, and, and I guess part of the way they were asking the question was, okay, well, do I, do I create this content and post every day or once a week or once a month or, you know, how often do I do this? And I think I would have this same answer to them as to this question right now. And for me, I would say, you've got to be really honest with yourself and say, you know, like you said, you, you're going to struggle. It's, it's not in your schedule right now. So in adding any time to that, 
to, to your current schedule could be an addition or it could be a reprioritization, right? Okay, if I'm working eight hours a day or 12 hours a day and I say, hey, I've got to, I've got to do an hour a day on, um, uh, um, you know, lear- learning the trends, learning what's going on around me, does that mean that I'm going to add an hour or am I going to reprioritize and, and absorb that hour somehow into the 12 or the eight or whatever hours I'm working? And I think in my mind, you need to be really honest with yourself and say, what can I really afford? How can I really make this happen? And if you say, hey, you know what? I could do an hour a day every day. Okay. Is that realistic? Should you start with half an hour a day or an hour every other day? Because I think the most important, uh, the most important aspect of it is that it has to be sustainable. So I run into people all the time and say, hey, oh my gosh, I learned so much from Bob. I'm going to go out. I'm going to talk to, um, if I do restaurants, I'm going to talk to every restaurant owner in, in a 20-mile radius, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do two hours every day, um, you know, even Saturdays and Sundays and so on and so forth. And, you know, that's great. It's great to have that energy. It's great to have that passion, that enthusiasm. But if that effort only lasts three days, then what did it get you? I mean, you definitely should have gained a lot of information in that six hours, but that could have been an hour a day for a week instead of, you know, lasting three days. So whatever you decide, I might start with that idea of being honest with yourself. I think I could do an hour a day, maybe even dial it back a little bit and work it in, make it, let it become a habit. And then you can always ratchet it up. You know, a month from now, you go, hey, you know what? This half hour a day is really paying off. What would happen if I made it 45 minutes a day? Or, or you know, whatever whatever the numbers are. Um, you, you, can always, you can always move it up. You can always move it down too. But ultimately, it's got to be sustainable. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. You know, you, you alluded to it at the beginning of, of this part that we're talking about is you know, most people, the, mo- the most important time for you to be marketing and doing these things and making plans for a downturn is when the going's good, right? You can afford to market when you've got great cash flow. You can afford to market when, um, when you've got a lot of work. If you wait till you don't have any work, it's too late, right? The pipeline is long. If you one way that I th- I think about it is the work that you're doing today or not doing today is going to manifest itself. It's going to be reflected three months from now. Yeah, you, know, you say that a lot, of, which is what makes me nervous. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, but but if, if, I, I think if we frame it that way, we start thinking about it that way, say, okay, well, what do I, what do I see three months out? What does that mean I need to be doing today? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's the important part of it. No, that is. And yeah, yeah, I think especially when you when you've made a move like like you're going through right now, I I can totally see how that could be scary because you're. Um, I would guess if it were me, there'd be a big gap in what I was doing while I was taking care of selling this and buying this and moving from here to there. You know, all those things. I think that's totally natural. 
Yeah, that's been taking a lot of time. Maybe I can, as that winds down next week, maybe I can just keep that space for like marketing. But you know, one thing, I think I'm not alone in this, but I think it's kind of safe to say that a lot of architects or single person architecture firms are, uh, when they were busy, I feel like I need to finish my work and I'm never going to finish. I'm just not going to finish. So I need to figure out how I do only work eight hours a day, let's say on my work, and then I can work on other things. So working 16 hours a day on my work, isn't going to make me finish it. And it's also not going to leave time for any of the other things that I actually really need to do. So, I mean, ideally I'll never be done overall. If I do marketing, I won't be done anyway. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And also that we just, what you just talked about was kind of atomic habits point, right? Just starting a little bit and then just keep doing that in a sustainable way. Um, and then when he was talking about the value, like deciding what your value is to the client, that kind of reminded me of uh, Jonathan Stark, I guess. And, you know, a lot of people talking about our value and he was saying that value is defined by what's important to the client, which, you know, when you think about your own value, it doesn't matter if you think you're valuable in a certain way, unless your client also thinks you are because your true value comes from them deciding you have value. I guess. I don't know if that's your true value, but you know what I mean? If they're going to pay for it, they have to value what you're doing, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I think by the definition of of value, when we think about it in, in monetary terms, I think that's exactly right. And it's, I think that's one of the, so we talked about something, um, something in the professional services, and I guess specifically for our, our sake, um, uh, architecture business model that's broken and I think this is another thing that's broken is that we often think about defining value in a certain way when in reality, as you just said, the value is defined by the client. And if we look at, uh, if we understand the, the psychology of it, value is driven by emotion. And so if we're trying to figure out, you know, what's most valuable to our clients or how can we be more valuable to our clients, we really need to start understanding how our work makes our clients feel, right? If the, if the, and, and you know, you may, uh, I was having a similar discussion in a mastermind group earlier today uh, with, with somebody that does a lot of renovation work in the hospitality area. So a lot of their clients are facilities managers, which is different, right, than someone that's designing homes. So for the facilities manager, ha making that facility, facility manager's life better or making them feel good about this whole thing may simply be taking care of them during the process making the process easier for them or less painful for them, the permitting, the bidding, all of those types of things. Whereas if you do residential architecture for a homeowner or a family, you know, whatever, whatever the dynamic is there, that could, this could be a completely different thing. You know, oh my gosh, I feel so comfortable in this new home now. I've got the breezes off the ocean. I've got the, the, this, part of the house is shaded in the morning so it stays cooler you know whatever whatever those things are that help them feel more comfortable that gets to the feeling which is what our human brains directly attribute to value and that that's that's that broken piece of it we're thinking of it in terms of 
financial monetary terms when we should be thinking about emotional terms and then bringing the monetary back to that, charging more for the, the good feelings than for the number of sheets in your set or the percentage of construction cost or, you know, whatever. Uh, again, that's very, very Jonathan Stark, who was a Context and Clarity live guest uh, about a month and a half ago, I guess. Yeah. How much is it worth to the person? It's worth X amount to this person to have whatever you're going to be giving them. And then you'd charge your value would be 10% of whatever they'd be willing to pay to get that thing. That's typically how I, I go about pricing my work is, and it, it's different. You know, I'm, a lot of my work is about, is eventually about company business building or revenue generation or something like that. And and so if we make this change and it generates X number of dollars, then I want my fee to be about 10% of, of that X. Makes sense. You talked about architect superpower is the ability to shape experiences. Is that what you said? It it is it is what I said. Christian asked a question about NFTs and and crypto and, and the metaverse, and so we we went down this road of of talking about the metaverse and what what it is, where it's going, what it'll be, things like that, and what value architects can can bring to it. And Bob used the example of uh, Bjork Ingels, uh, big designing a project some sort of headquarters building or something for, for a client in the metaverse. And, and, and we've talked about this before when we've had metaverse architects as context and clarity, live guests, George Bileka and, and uh, Fatima Monfared um, earlier this year. And, and there's, there's, there's all kinds of oddities there, right? There's all kinds of unknowns there. But, but one of the things that comes up all the time in our conversations is, okay, well, why are we designing in the metaverse in a way that looks like the real world, that has the uh, um, limitations of the real world, like gravity and things like that? And it, it strikes me when we get into those types of conversations and, and why would an architect work in the metaverse? Again, what kind of value? I, I think that the architect's superpower is creating experiences. And I think we lose touch with that a lot. And to me, that's the crossover between the physical and the metaverse. I think, I think that's still the value. If, if you're an architect that wants to work in the metaverse, I think that's the value. I think you throw all the other things out. What does creating an experience for a user in the metaverse mean? I have no idea. I've not worked in the metaverse. Uh, you know, I know what I know because we've researched to talk to these guests of ours. I don't know what it means, but I do know that um, it means something different than in the real world, and it might. And it's it's definitely in the realm of user experience. Um, but but I think that's the tie, and I think that's again back to the value. I think if we're not if we're not considering the experience, again, it could be the facilities manager. You know, what's his experience or her experience through the project? Permitting, bidding, all, all those things maybe. Construction process. Or the family. It could still be the process. Oh, it was fun to design this. It was great to think about these things. Um, or the experience of the space afterwards. The intimacy. The, the whatever. 
you know, they, they, um, they were hoping for in their new home or their renovation. Yeah. And he was also saying that, um, architects don't think somehow, I think he was saying that we don't think to apply our creative abilities to business, that we don't think that we could do that. And when it comes to business and he, um, he said the business problems are a design problem, essentially that we have the capabilities of figuring out. So I thought that was kind of interesting too, because it's true. I mean, being creative is being creative. That was one of the points. There were several points in this conversation where I was, I was listening to Bob and I sat back and I was just thinking, you know, we could, we could do an entire episode yeah. on this one point and that this was one of them. And I think, um, I, a hundred percent agree with him that many architects, probably most architects don't apply their creativity to, I'm going to say their business model and the way that they do business. Now, I think in, in my opinion, there's a limit to that. There's a line that you shouldn't cross, you know, when it gets to the, the, um, systems and processes. Yeah. Don't get, creative. don't get creative. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, the the process of doing your work, the process of creating that, but yes, but when it comes to accounting, and I'm not talking about creative accounting, but but like invoicing, um, you know, any any of these standard business processes, don't get creative. Find someone, find an accountant, find someone that 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 um, hey, how do you how do you do um, how do you do your invoicing? What well, we we do it twice a month, and we use QuickBooks and do that. Don't get creative with that, but think differently about how you actually do business. What what is it that you offer? What are the services that you offer? Um, you know, Bob talked about understanding your clients and what they need and what they want. Get creative about that. There's there's no rule that says that you have to follow these phases of design services. Whether you whether you have five or seven or nine or whatever your number is, you could do something completely different. You could serve your clients in a completely different way. We've had guests on Context and Clarity in the past that do that. Declan Keefe comes to mind with Co Everything. You know they think very differently about how they work with clients and, and how they work with all the stakeholders and, and, and who the stakeholders are. Um, I think they have rethought, uh, um, their entire practice and business model. Now I think that's where the value of, of being creative in your business comes, but those, those standard building or standard business systems do not reinvent the wheel when it comes to, comes to those things. The, the accounting, the invoicing piece always comes to my mind because it's, I, I think it's pretty easy for us to understand, but it's, um, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and I said, you know, at, at Ball State where I went to school, the architecture building is here and the business building is directly adjacent. And from this door on the architecture building to this door on the business building is no more than 50 yards. And yet there's no business training happening inside the architecture building. Of course, no architecture training going on inside the business building. But I, I think what I think the, the biggest asset that comes out of architectural education is 
you're being trained in critical thinking, design thinking, creative problem solving, and you're not getting any business training. And so then when you, you get out of school, maybe you go to work for somebody, maybe you don't. At some point, you decide to start your own firm. And so that's great. You know how to design. You know the code. You know all of those things. You can do that. But then you have the realities of the business of architecture, the accounting, the marketing, the business development, all those things. And you don't know how to do those things. You didn't have any training in those types of things in school. So what you do is you fall back on what you are trained in. And you start to try to reinvent the wheel Mm -hmm. on some of these business systems. Whereas the best thing that you could have done when you were on campus was when you started talking about these things is go over to the lounge in the business building and say, hey, who has a system for accounting? 53 people are going to raise their hand, talk to three of them, pick out the system that sounds most logical to you and just use it. That That's that's where we need to draw the line, I think, between creative when it comes okay. to business. No creative accounting. <laughs> yeah, I, I keep coming back <laughs> to that. That's The IRS is listening. They're going, oh my gosh, this guy's into <laughs> creative talking accounting. talking about that. Yeah, he, uh, he also said, um, Bob also said that there are ways that he sees people limiting themselves by not applying their talents and imagination. So it's just a good reminder that we have, we have the ability to be creative in a lot of things. Like, the, you know, when we talked to um, the Savannah Bananas guy, Jesse Cole, like he's creative in yes. his experience, designing experiences for people. I don't know, that was, that stuck with me. It's the first time I heard an interview with him, but he talked about being alive to opportunities. He talked about storytelling and how important it is for architects to be able to help the client tell a story. Well, in his case, he was talking about raising money for um, school projects as a client and how we needed the architect's help. But I, I think that we as architects, like residential architects, we have to tell stories to our clients to get them to see the value in what we're designing for them. So the way we tell stories could be in words and also images and, and that sort of thing. So it is it is important part of what we have to do is the storytelling. He mentioned relevance. And I think that's the, I, I think storytelling is a great tool, if, if nothing else, is a great tool to help people understand the relevance um, and, and to connect with people. And, and going back to, you know, why why do you like a movie or not like a movie? Or why do you like a book and why do you not like a book? You're not connecting with the characters or uh, the plot or, or, or the, uh, um, the, the uh, type, of, type of book or movie or whatever it is. And I, I think that's where it becomes really important is how do we – going back to what he said, I think, early on in the conversation, understanding – your clients, your client's world, what they need, what they value, all of those, that's going to help you tell a better story. It's going to help you tell a story that's relevant to them. And, and, and I, think it, I think it goes both ways. Right? If we understand their story, I mean, if we, we really, I, you know, I, I, I talked about Bob being um, an observationalist or something like that. If we really take the time to observe what's going on in our client's world. I'll say it that way because you could you could be designing a library, you could be designing a new kitchen, but if we really take the time to observe what's going on in our client's world and understand their story, 
that's that's going to open doors. That's going to open our eyes. It's going to it's going to help us be better architects. It's going to help us be better service providers if we respond to that. And I, I think that's the you know going back to the idea was to how do we identify trends and how do we respond to those things? Well, if we're if we're observing these things, if we have empathy for the people that we serve, our clients, and we respond in a way that that matches, then we've got to get something going on. So many, many moons ago, I was the um, director of communications at an independent school that was, you know, over 100 years old. And it hadn't done anything significant with its campus since the early 1960s. And um, they what I was, I was in charge of the communications effort around um, building the, the strategy, developing the campus master plan, and then doing the capital campaign to help raise funds for this. Now, it was one independent school, but it was overall in a 10 year period, they were projecting a $70 million, uh, you know, Im- improvement to the campus. So over time, that was quite a quite a, an investment that they were looking to make. Um, the architecture firm that we were working with um, did a fantastic job at helping with helping the, the people who ran the school who were not, you know, they hadn't done a major capital project in decades, right? So they were not very savvy clients, but the firm helped them really understand what their needs were and where they should be putting their investments right? In terms of uh, what kind of facilities they needed. So that firm, of course, was, the, was uh, let's just say, the odds-on favorite uh, to wind up getting the design work, and they did. Um, then, what, then things kind of got interesting, because what I don't feel that they really understood was that once, once we started getting into how the strategy for the school shows up in a new campus that we then have to go out and raise 60 to 70% of that $70 million in order to be able to do a single building. And I ultimately had to go into my budget. Now I remember I'm on the client side in order to have even like a 3d model built of the new campus, because I just couldn't get files out of the architecture firm no matter how many times we asked or how many influential people I tried to get it asked on my behalf. And it just baffled me that they didn't understand. We needed to tell a story of the vision of the future of the campus. Why wasn't our architect leading the development of that story and helping guide us in how we could tell that story frame that story in a compelling way for people uh, to to help support what this vision for the future of the school was, to me that was um, that was a real light bulb moment, and it was a lesson that um, that I've taken into my work today. Because it was after that that I started, you know, working with firms, working with architecture and design firms on how it is that they can run better businesses. So I always took that lesson with me um, as a as an example of there are tremendous opportunities for architects to get back into the master builder model 
right? And to be the true client advocate and leader. Um, I think there are ways in which there are some sort of self-limiting practices and self-limiting beliefs uh, that have, have come about to sort of uh, diminish the, the influence that architects have, but there's so much opportunity. There's so much opportunity to create value in ways that we're not doing it today um, that I'm, I'm, I'm excited when I'm seeing people be creative about how they, how they create value and how they help folks. Uh, and then start realizing the benefits of that. Earlier this week, the topic that we were talking about, I think it was the day we were talking about um, what inspires and informs your work. And I believe it was Jake brought up the idea that he's bucking the idea. He's continually bucking the idea of this is the way we've always done it or, you know, some version of that. It, you know, and you, you mentioned the limiting beliefs or, or, or limitations earlier. And I think that's one of the big ones, right? This is the way we run our firm. We, these are our seven phases of design services and I'm not knocking phases of design services, but taking, taking this rigid business model and never testing it. You know, I know architects that have practiced this exact same way for 30 years. And they've been through three recessions, you know, so on and so forth. And they've suffered mightily through every one of those professions or, or recessions and, and all of the realities of the practice. And I think about what could have been if they weren't so rigid, you know, similar to what Bob is saying. If we were actually responding, and he talked about this a little bit in, in relation to recession and the client's you know, what are their needs going to be if things slow down? What are their needs going to be as things will naturally, it's cyclical, so as things naturally recede, how are their needs going to change and how are we going to respond to that? There's an awful lot of business people that are not, that don't do that. It's not just architects, but there are a lot of people that don't respond. Probably they aren't really observing. They're just making assumptions and trying to cram it into this box that they've been building for 30 years. And I think if we have any hope of changing that, we've, we've got to be responsive. We've got to be w willing and able to change along with it. Um, that, that's, that, I guess that's a big key for me coming out of this conversation is just reinforcing that idea of if we have a responsive practice, there's hope for us as we go through these ups and downs. I mean, there's, still, there's always ups and downs. There's still pain. There's always pain. Um, but... But that's something that can help. That's something that can flatten out those the the peaks and valleys of the feast or famine roller coasters, what I like to call it. Well, I feel like we, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we talked a lot about uh, this on context and clarity, like how to pivot and get our feet back under us. And that it turned out that a lot of us, uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. So we thought maybe we weren't going to have a lot of work for a long time. But then most of us just went and it just slammed just the work just piled on pretty much a month later, but all that preparing and thinking and planning that we did back then, it, we could apply it to a coming recession. I mean, I feel like most of us have already, already kind of thought about how we would, um, what we could do and how we're going to respond. So we can, we can use that. I, I think that's a really good point is maybe it was really good preparation, 
and thankfully the the pandemic in some ways didn't play out the way that was predicted for us anyway um for for a, right exactly um now i would i would put it in the category of bizarre i mean just the roller coaster yeah. ride that it was but and and continues mm-hmm. to be but i think that's uh yeah i think that's a really good point if you survived that and if you're listening to this you did yeah you did you can survive whatever's coming and i i agree i think the preparation is similar and the good news is with the pandemic you didn't have a runway right it was like it was like the crash test dummies you're slammed into the yeah. wall um yeah now now you have all kinds of people predicting all kinds of things mm. and you know who knows but you at least have some indication that there's going to be a downturn and you can prepare for it i thought it was interesting when he he said what are um it it's not important what we think the economy is going to happen with the economy, but what our clients are thinking about the economy is what's important to our businesses, I guess. It's just all about mindset and I guess and getting prepared for things and, and keeping an eye on the trends or what your clients are seeing as being the trends. Well, what did you think? Did you hear something in there that you can use in your practice today? If you are so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. And if you want more of the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week, give us a thumbs up and subscribe wherever you consume podcasts. If you like content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment, and it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And one last thing before you go. If the topic of today's episode is of particular interest to you, join me over on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host Context and Clarity Conversations, and we take topics like this, and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community and your practice and how you can support those around you. We'll be back here again next week, and in the meantime... I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context is. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris 
owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.